My name is Tim, if you don't already know that. Um, if you're visiting, maybe family and, and sharing the mountain on this holiday weekend, a, a especially warm welcome to you. And, and thanks to all of you that are regulars at IBC and you decided to come to both morning services and evening services. I'm encouraged by that because <laughs> I, heard, I heard little rumblings of some who, well, I'm going to come tonight, so I don't think I'm coming this morning. And so I'm glad that's not you today. I'm glad that's not you. We're going to enjoy the word together, and um, we have more singing in the table of communion to enjoy as well. So let's grab our Bibles and let's turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 1 in the New Testament. Colossians, chapter 1. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Um, maybe you'll have it on your phone or your iPad. By the way, silence those cell phones if you wouldn't mind. If they're not already in that place, that would be helpful. And from your bulletin, retrieve this little note page. I would be grateful if you would do that. There's a lot of information on there, and it'll be really helpful, I think, today. And also from your bulletin, there's this little booklet. And I call it to your attention because, once again, our hope is that you would take this little booklet, and what would you do with it? You would share it. You would give it away. The last few Sunday mornings, we've been providing you with this booklet. And the goal is to, uh, it, it ties into what we're sharing together through the month of December. But it's really a, a little booklet for you to give away to somebody who may not yet know Jesus. And so uh, you might want to have that handy as well. And church family, it, it happened about a week ago this past Friday the Last Jedi, the newest installment of the Star Wars saga, came out in theaters. Now, how many have already seen The Last Jedi? Okay, well, all right, all right, great. You know, there were people that were camped out in front of the theater literally for days so that they could be the first to see Star Wars, The Last Jedi. Now, were any of you part of that camping out crowd? Honestly, were any of you? No? Great. So you do have a life. All right. <laughs> Great. But thousands were camped out in front of the theaters, Star Wars fans and devotees that they absolutely had to be the first to see this next to last chapter of a story that really has captivated the imaginations of moviegoers for more than four decades now. Star Wars, as literally everybody on the planet very likely knows, is a, it's a fictional fantasy adventure story that pits good against evil. The Jedi are the good guys, and they're vastly outnumbered, and they battle the bad guys who are the Sith, and, 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 and each side is drawing upon the Force, this, this mystical power to try to to, to be the victor, and the, the battle pitches back and forth over these eight episodes and some 40 years of movie-going time. And people absolutely love Star Wars, the story. They can't get enough of it. That it's a make-believe story, that it's not true, it doesn't matter. They love the story. Oh, church family. Oh, that, that our world, that our friends would, would, would be in love as much with another story as they are with Star Wars. Would that their imaginations were captivated and couldn't get enough of the story of all stories. 
the story that we have been telling, actually, over the course of the last few Sunday mornings together here in the month of December. Because this story, the story that we are telling, is not a make-believe story. It's not a, a fictional fantasy adventure story. The story that we're telling is 100% true. It is 100% real. It's a story in which the Christmas story is, is a part of it, but it's not the whole. There's a much bigger story than the Christmas story, and we're sharing that story together. It is an amazing adventure. I'll have to say that but it is also a true story. The story that we're sharing was written by the author of authors, none other than God himself. God has written down the story and he's put it within the covers of our Bibles, as you know. And in this book called the Bible, as the story unfolds, God tells us how everything came into being and how we got here. In this story, God tells us What went wrong? Something happened, definitely happened in the midst of the story that that God now says, I'm going to make right. And even this story tells us what's yet to come in the future. And it's true. All of this and more is part of the story. And it's a story that we've been learning can actually be summarized with four words. And those four words are actually captured in this little booklet. What are those four words? Well, the story can be told by creation and the fall and rescue. And what's the last one? Restoration. That's right. And if anyone, if, if we know these four words and the truth that is behind these four words, well, then we know the story. So far, we have together on our previous mornings listened to the creation part of the story as the divine storyteller has been sharing it with us. And we've learned about the fall as well. Last week, we kind of parted company for just a little bit to do Christmas share. Today, we step into the third part of the story, the rescue, which is really the most amazing, incredible, awesome, practically indescribable part of the story. Absolutely, yeah, right, Scott. So, so let's watch and remember where we have been, and we'll give you a little taste of where we're going this morning. Let's watch this DVD that we've been sharing on these mornings. There is only one story that answers life's most essential questions and gives a lasting sense of purpose and meaning. It's the story that inspires all other stories. It's the true story that defines every one of us. This is that story. How did it all begin? Like all stories, this one begins in the beginning with the author, who is God. He spoke everything into being. With a word, galaxies appeared with stars and planets. Earth was designed for life to flourish. Everything God made was gloriously good and breathtakingly perfect. The highlight of God's creation was the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. God entrusted everything he created to his beloved children, giving just one rule. They were not to eat fruit from a specific tree. They lived in loving obedience, worshiping God as their heavenly father, and enjoying perfect harmony with creation, each other, and God. Considering our world today, It's obvious perfect peace didn't last. Turmoil, war, 
sickness, troubles. We each have our share. What went wrong? It started when a fallen angel named Satan grew jealous of God and determined to ruin the perfection of creation. Satan took the form of a serpent and enticed Adam and Eve to question God's goodness and rebel against his one rule. In disobedience, they ate the fruit and peace unraveled, ushering in sin and death, which still plagues us today. If we are honest, we are very much like Adam and Eve. We all rebel against our Heavenly Father, making our hearts heavy with fear, guilt, and shame. Our bodies are weary with sickness, disease, and death. Earth is afflicted with storms, calamities, and disasters. Even worse, sin has separated us from God, causing a permanent divide, a miserable separation called hell. The fallout of sin has been catastrophic. It's inescapable with no way to fix it, leaving us all to wonder, is there any hope? The love that prompted God to create us also prompted him to send a savior who would set everything right again. As centuries passed, God shared exact details of the coming savior's birth, life, and death. Everything in the Bible points to this rescuer. Almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to earth as God the Son to fulfill the promise. He was born miraculously, as his mother was a virgin. Just like us, Jesus grew up and experienced life on earth. But unlike us, Jesus never sinned and always obeyed the Father. When Jesus was in his 30s, he began teaching all around Israel, pointing people to God's kingdom and performing many miracles. After a few years, he was wrongly accused and sentenced to an agonizing death on a cross. Jesus lovingly gave up his perfect life as a sacrifice to pay for the sins of mankind. He died a perfect death, taking our place, the innocent for the guilty. But the grave couldn't hold Jesus. Three days later, God brought Jesus to life again. Jesus defeated sin by dying on the cross and defeated death by rising from the dead. Today, Jesus sits at God's right hand as king and judge over all creation. This is the story of rescue God has authored. He invites us, through repentance and faith, to make his story of rescue the one we trust in and live from. When we do, everything changes. Wow. <laughs> well, this uh, DVD that you've uh, just uh, seen is is also available on, on the website that goes with this little booklet. If the friend that you have maybe doesn't want to read a booklet, maybe they'd watch that DVD. And we've shared with you now three quarters of the, the story through that DVD, but it is available if you'd like to, and it's very inexpensive as well, and a great tool possibly for sharing Jesus with someone else. Well, like any great story, there is a storyline that is woven into the fabric of the story from beginning to end, connecting all of the parts and, and, and tying everything together, just like Star Wars has a storyline and characters that have run through all eight episodes, making each a part of the larger whole, well, God's story has a storyline as well. And the storyline is 
rescue. If we could only have one word, perhaps, to describe the Bible with and would share what it's all about, it might well be this one word, rescue. Rescue is the divine storyline. It's the story of God coming into our world and rescuing sinners, us. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Your Bible is open to that place. And because we're all carrying different versions, maybe I could just direct you to the front because I'd invite all of us to read right off of the screen Colossians 1, 13 and 14, which says this. Let's do it together. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For God has what? Rescued us. The divine storyline is captured right here. Jesus will say very similar things when he says in Luke chapter 10, verse, or verse, chapter 10, 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That's the story of rescue, isn't it? That's the story of Jesus. I came to rescue lost sinners. So this morning, church family, I'd invite you to just trace out with me through the scriptures this divine storyline as you see it there on your note page. Uh, We're going to have to move pretty fast if we're going to get through this, but I've asked you to do that before, and I know you can do it with me again. I've also tried to supply you with a number of Bible references that will allow you, if you have more time this week in your quiet time, maybe to come back and trace the story out in more detail than we can do here in the time we have. The story begins with creation, as the DVD told us, when God, living in eternity past in the perfect love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, determined to express their love in an altogether new way. And so with only a word, God speaks everything that exists into being, from millions of far-flung galaxies to, to subatomic particles, God creates it all with just a word. And the pinnacle of his creative activity is us, mankind, image bearers, the scriptures say, designed by God to be able to not only receive his love, but also to express love back to him in a perfect, sinless, holy, intensely intimate relationship. At the dawn of creation, there's no pain, the DVT told us. There was no suffering, no sickness, no death. Just perfect love, perfect acceptance, intimacy between God and the people that he had made. In a word, God had wanted relationship, and he had it in the Garden of Eden. At this time, there's no need for rescue, is there? You don't need a rescuer. There's nothing to be rescued from. God enjoyed his creation immensely. And Adam and Eve, the first image bearers, they enjoyed their God immensely. But then something tragic has happened. We call it the fall. Genesis chapter 3. Because God wanted an authentic relationship between Adam and Eve and mankind, he gave them a will. And they could choose to either obey or disobey, love or not love. So one fateful day, Satan enticed them. They reject God for something less than God, and they plunge themselves and all of mankind into sin, which separates, always separates from God. In one horrific, tragic, terrible moment, 
Sin brought death into the world, death to the image bearers, physical death and spiritual death to Adam and Eve and their offspring, which includes all of us. And with that comes now the need for what? The need for what, church? For rescue, right. Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7 say that Adam and Eve's eyes were opened and now they they, they knew a, a, a devastating reality. Separation from a holy God because of sin and death. Romans 3.23 lays it out plain for you and I. For, what's the next word? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The all includes all of us. Every single one of us. Now God could have washed his hands of it all. Right then and there. Says you don't want relationship. Okay, I'm not going to force you to have relationship. But love would not let him do that. And thus the divine storyline of rescue begins to unfold. And it begins to unfold at the very beginning. Even before Genesis chapter 3, which records the fall, even before that chapter is over, God promises rescue. And he does that in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 15. God says to Satan, I will put enmity, I will put hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, singular, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who's the he, church? Ah, it's Jesus. That's right. Believe it or not, this is the Bible's very first hint of a coming rescuer. Even before the chapter is over. He'll be a descendant of Eve. He'll be fully human. And he will deliver a blow to Satan that will, in fact, destroy him. A head blow. Theologians refer to verse 15 as the the first mention of the gospel. The good news. Rescue from sin, death, and separation. God says it's coming. It's coming. And only a loving, gracious, and forgiving creator God would not allow Genesis chapter 3 or the fall to end without a hope-filled promise of rescue. But for this to happen, for rescue to happen, God needs to bring the rescuer into our world. And the way he determines to do that, according to the Bible, is through a specific people, a specific nation. And so in the unfolding storyline, that brings us to the reach of rescue, as you see it there on your page. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham out of all the peoples living at that time and tells him that from him, he's going to create a brand new nation, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. And then through that nation, through that line, that specific line, God will bring the rescuer into the world. But even as he tells Abraham this and and Abraham can scarcely take it all in, God makes clear that the rescuer who will come will not just be for the Jewish people. He will not just be for the Hebrew people. He will come and he will be for all peoples, all nations, all sinners. And the Apostle Paul, tracing this part of the storyline out, says to the Christians in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, and the scripture for seeing, excuse me, Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, 
by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. In other words, rescue's reach is extended to all sinners, right? All sinners? All sinners? Yeah, regardless of nationality or creed or color or anything else. And aren't we all who are not Jewish very glad for the reach of rescue this morning from Genesis chapter 12? Well, then as the storyline continues to unfold, we come to pictures of rescue that God includes in his book, the Bible. When I was little, and maybe you were like me, I liked the books that had lots of pictures. Those were my favorite books. Truth be told, I still like books like that a lot. Someone else can do the reading. I like the pictures. Well, it's not quite that bad now, but i uh, outgrown that a little bit. But God, knowing that about us, that we like pictures, he's careful to include many rescue pictures in the story that he writes. And so near the bottom of your note page are just a, a small sampling of some of the pictures that God includes in his book about rescue. In, in fact, Noah and the flood, would that not be a rescue picture for you and me? Sure it is. Genesis 6, 7, and 8, that's a picture of rescue. God brings Noah and his family, eight people in all, through the waters of divine judgment. He takes them through in this amazing boat, right, with all of the other animals of creation. And, and this is a picture that's not lost on the New Testament writers. The Apostle Peter will write about the, the flood and say, God brought us through the judgment, just like he did Noah and his family. In Exodus chapter 12, we have a marvelous picture of rescue. Before God brings the tenth and final plague upon Egypt that will result in the Hebrew people being freed from slavery, that plague being the death of all the firstborn of the Egyptians. Do you remember the story? Yeah, you remember that part of the story? Say yes. All right, great. God instructs the Hebrews, doesn't he, to, to take an innocent lamb and kill it and sprinkle its blood on the door frames and on the lintel of their homes. And then when the death angel comes, he will, what will he do? He will pass over their homes because they are under the protection of innocent blood. What a picture that will be of Jesus, won't it? In fact, you can even see the symbolism of the cross of Jesus captured in the way that God says, I want you to do this. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Jesus has become our Passover lamb. That's a picture of rescue. The Exodus itself, is it not a picture of rescue? If you know the story, God brings 3 million Jewish people out from under 400 years of slavery and bondage to a cruel foreign power. He liberates them, brings them into a promised land. That's a picture of rescue. And the Apostle Paul, he's not lost on that picture either. He writes the Roman church, and here's what he says. But thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed and have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. That's a picture of rescue, is it not? Captured in the Old Testament 
through the Exodus. The book of Ruth comes to my mind. The Old Testament presents another picture of rescue. Ruth is a foreigner. She's a, a Gentile. She's absolutely destitute. She has, she has nothing and she has no future. But then she's graciously provided for by a guy named Boaz, a wealthy Jewish man. Eventually, Ruth is welcomed into his home. He redeems her at great cost to himself. He makes her his wife, part of his family. It's a wonderful picture of rescue, undeserved grace, a picture of what God will do when sinners come to Jesus and he redeems them at great cost to himself. And there are many, many more pictures. You know this, church family, many more pictures that we don't have time to explore, but they're part of the rescue story, the divine storyline. So not only do we see the storyline in the pictures, but if you'll flip that little note page over, there are also uh, many, many prophecies that carry the storyline telling about a coming rescuer. God, as he writes the story, is not content to just spring things on us. He loves to tell us what he's going to do in advance so that when he does it, then we'll know, oh, it's you, God. You were, you were in it all the time, exerting your sovereign control over time and creation and Satan and even our rescue. So we've already shared the very first prophecy in the Bible. That was Genesis 3.15 in the garden there. Uh, We've also shared about rescue from Genesis chapter 12, that God would bless all the nations when the rescuer came. And then you come to to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. 750 years before the rescuer appears... God, through this prophet, says the rescuer, when he comes, is going to be virgin born. And he will be God himself. Now, that's never happened before. It will never happen again. God wanted everyone to know before it happened that the rescuer is going to be unique. The joining together of deity with humanity, an earthly mother and a heavenly father. Fully human, but sinless God. Ah, 750 years before that happens, God says this is what the rescuer is going to look like. Isaiah 7, 14 reads like this. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean, church? God with us. Yes, indeed. And we know about this verse. We see it on a lot of Christmas cards, don't we, at this time. So when we read in Matthew or we read in Luke, as the angel announces to Mary that she's going to conceive and bear a son, though she is a virgin, well, that's actually pretty old news, isn't it? That's old news. It's 750-year-old news that the angel actually gives to Mary. But it's totally part of the divine storyline of rescue. And to Isaiah, God also gives the task of announcing that the rescuer is going to appear not as some powerful, mighty king, but he's going to appear as a servant who will suffer greatly, unimaginably, in his rescuing role. God says, I want you to know that 
before he comes. He's going to come as a rescuer and suffer. Isaiah 53, here's what God says. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Amen? Amen. Jesus will confirm that this is how he comes. In Mark 10.45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did, uh, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Part of the reason so many missed Jesus at his first coming is because they had it in their minds that this Messiah rescuer that God would send was going to be a mighty warrior. He would be a, a conquering king. And he would bring about a political deliverance and and make Israel significant and powerful once again. That's who they were looking for. But God was sending a spiritual rescuer. A far greater need was on the table than political deliverance. And so that's how he chose to write the story. And so the rescuer comes as a servant to die, not as a king, to conquer. And then to Micah. Another Old Testament prophet, God entrusts another announcement about where the rescuer would make entrance into the world. God says, I want you to know about that before it happens. He'll come in Bethlehem, at Bethlehem, 700 years before the first Christmas. Here's what Micah foretold. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That expression, ancient days, means before time. He'll come from before time, and he will make entrance at a little village that nobody knows about, and very few people care about. And to this short list, then, of prophecies, we could literally add dozens more, all of them telling us about the rescuer, All of them sharing the same storyline. Rescue. It'll come through the person that God sends. Which brings us now to the actual moment of the coming of the rescuer. The moment that we're actually celebrating at this time of the year. All that has gone before, all of that has been prelude now to this moment. The moment when God actually enters into time and space, into this physical world, and into the human stream, becoming one of us without becoming less than all of himself. And this being Christmas Eve today, we couldn't be better positioned to remember this part of the story. From Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, 21 to 23, we read these well-known words. The angel said, Mary will bear a son. You shall call his name, what? Jesus, for he will save He will rescue his people from their sins. The name Jesus literally means in Hebrew, the Lord is salvation. The Lord is rescue. You shall call him rescue. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. At Christmas, everybody's dialed into the Christmas story when when God in the person of Jesus enters the world at Bethlehem through a miraculous virgin birth. Virtually everybody knows that part of the story, even if they don't believe it. People love it. They love to hear about it. They love to tell it. Certainly love to celebrate it. But the Christmas story is not the most important part of the story. In fact, the Christmas story doesn't even make sense. Unless you know the larger story, does it? It doesn't make any sense apart from the story of rescue that God is writing. Only if God enters this world of fallen, sin-infected humanity, becoming fully human himself, yet without sin can he truly identify with us, represent us before a holy God. He accomplishes this through the mystery of the Trinity and the miracle of the virgin birth. 100% flesh and blood, human being joined to 100% full-on God. Full-on God. And Jesus must be that. Sinless God. And fully human. Because no one under a death sentence of sin can actually pay the debt of another sinner. Agreed with that? We in agreement? So this is who he has to be. The God-man. Clear back in the beginning, at the very beginning, God had told his image bearers that the penalty of sin and rebellious disobedience, the price that that sin would exact from them, would be death. Physical death, yes, but far more serious, a spiritual separation from holy God. And knowing that we could never pay the debt back ourselves, God in Jesus comes to pay the debt that we could never pay. Rescue. Though no one at the first Christmas could possibly have known it, there was from the moment that Jesus arrived in that Bethlehem manger, there was a shadow, the shadow of a cross falling upon that manger. Recall again Jesus' own words, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to do what? give his life as a ransom for many. And so the only reason that there is a Christmas and why that is written into the story is because we needed rescuing. Agreed? It's the story. And oh, at what cost, what cost this rescue? What cost to God for our rescue? It's nothing less than the life of his son, innocent, sinless Jesus, dying on a cruel cross. Jesus, as the story unfolds, and you know it, begins to allow aspects of his deity to spill out as he grows from childhood into adulthood. And his deity begins to spill out as he walks around in the world. And it's exactly what we'd expect. And so his deity spills out in his profound teaching. It spills out in his extraordinary miracles. And at first, everyone is captivated by Jesus. And and huge crowds follow him. And and they're calling him the Messiah. and, and, And they want him. They want him. But then the religious and political leaders become jealous. And they feel threatened by 
Jesus. Eventually, they arrest, arrest him. They falsely condemn him, and they sentence him to die by crucifixion. But it was all part of the plan, the rescue plan that God had. His sinless son would die unjustly, but deliberately, the death that the sinner was supposed to die. He would endure the wrath of God against sin in the sinner's place. He would pay the debt the sinner owed God. His shed blood would have the power to cover the guilt of the sinner and to restore the relationship that was broken between holy God and the sin and and the image bearers back in the garden. In fact, allow the verses that are on your note page just to convey the truth of the cost to God of our rescue. They don't need to be commented on. They just need to be considered. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. In Him, that is in Jesus, we have what, church? We have redemption. What's another word for that? Rescue. In Him, we have rescue. How? Through His blood. Nothing less than His blood, His death. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which God lavished on us. I love that word. Hebrews 9.12 He, Jesus, entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of what? His own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption, an eternal what? Rescue. Yes. 1 Peter 1.18 Knowing that you were ransomed, you were rescued from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood, the precious blood of Christ. At what cost? Our rescue. Second Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, the cost of rescue. This last verse reminds us that as Jesus hung on the cross for us, he actually took every sin that you or I have committed or ever will commit, and he took those on to himself. He assumed the full punishment of those sins. He made it his own, though he was innocent God. Oh, the cost of our rescue. No wonder that that from the cross Jesus will cry out in this unspeakable anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember those words? We know why. We know why. So that we would not have to be forsaken. Rescue. It's all about rescue. And to prove that the price of rescue had been paid, in fact, in full and accepted by God, Jesus rises from the dead. Amen. He declares on that first Easter morning that Satan's head has been dealt a fatal blow, that death, sin, and the grave cannot hold him. He rises, and the one who had been the suffering servant once again takes his place at the Father's right hand as the conquering king. But here's the thing, and this is So, so critical to understanding the story. 
God, through his son, Jesus, has secured rescue. It is done. In fact, what were the words of Jesus from the cross? It is finished. It's done. The rescue has been accomplished. It's now possible to be rescued. But God does not require anyone to be rescued unless they want to be rescued. We all know what this is, right? You know what this is. It's a life ring. Standard equipment at any pool, on any boat, on any Coast Guard helicopter, anywhere where there is the possibility of someone drowning, we're going to find one of these. Maybe you have seen uh, those gripping images on a, on a, a news program of, of someone in a raging flooded river who's, who's clinging for dear life to a branch. And that's all they've got. And they're about to be swept downstream. And first responders are on the shore. And, and what do they do? They throw a life ring, right, with a rope attached. And they throw it to this, this helpless person. Now, if they take the life ring, if they will grab it, they're going to be what? They're going to be rescued. They're going to be saved. They'll be pulled from the river and rescued from drowning. But, but church family, in order for rescue to happen, two things must be done by this person. They have to believe that the life ring will keep them up, will hold them. Keep them from going under the water. They have to believe that. Secondly, what do they have to do? They got to let go. They got to let go of what they were holding on to. If they don't do those two things, there is not going to be a rescue of that person. They've got to believe and they've got to let go. Now, stop and think about that as you think about the story of our rescue. The same is true, is it not? You have to believe, and we have to let go. Jesus is the life ring that God, figuratively speaking, has thrown into our fallenness, into our desperate, dark world. He died for our sins. He rose and gave us life, but there's only one way to be rescued. We have to let go. We have to let go of whatever we we've desperately been holding on to to save us up to that point. And usually for most people, what most people are holding on to is their efforts to be good, right? To be a good person and to do good things that will attract attract God's attention and God will look on them and say, well, you're a good person. I think think I'll rescue you. You've got to let go of that thought because that that will never save you. You've got to let go. And then you have to believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus is sufficient to save. Jesus plus nothing else, right? Do those two things, Scripture says, and you will be rescued. Check out these promises of rescue. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever what, church? Believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Believe in Jesus and you will be what? Rescued. 
Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be rescued. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, my sin hung on the cross with Jesus when he died for me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by what? By believing. By believing in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here's the question of the day. Have you been rescued? Have you been rescued? Yes. 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 You've let go. You've let go of every last ounce of trust in your own goodness or your own good works. Have you let go? Have you let go and believed that that God has... Believe what God has told you in the story. Believe that Jesus died for you, rose from the dead, that he lives for you now and he has rescued you and he will hold you up both now and forevermore. You believe that? You let go and you believe. And the promise from God is you are rescued. Rescued. Now, if you answered yes to the question, am I rescued What joy for you today on this Christmas Eve. What joy. You have been rescued. What praise and glory to God. His rescue plan. It was accomplished in your life. You've been rescued. This is going to be a great Christmas. Now, if you did not answer when I asked, are you rescued? Have you been rescued? If you didn't answer or, or you are unsure about how to answer that question in this moment, can I just say to you right now, friend, that, that God is floating the life ring of Jesus right next to you right now. He's doing that right this moment. It is within reach. He loves you so much that this is why he's doing that. He's brought Jesus right next to you this morning and he wants relationship a relationship that sin has stolen from him and from you he wants life for you eternal life for you but no one can make you take Jesus but he wants God wants you to take Jesus so that he can pull you to himself forgive your sin and give you life with him forever but he'll never make you take the life ring of Jesus. You got to let go and you got to believe. We never have to wonder if what God has said to us is real or true. It's true. First John 5, 11 and 12. This is the testimony. This is the witness that God gave us eternal life, rescue. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Take hold of life, God would say, on this Christmas Eve day. Let's pray together. Let's pray. 
And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, and if I could for just a moment speak to maybe to you who did not answer the question when I put it out there, have you been rescued? Can I just ask you in this moment, what in the world would possibly cause you to want to keep holding on to something that can't save you? whatever that might be in your life, what would keep you from letting go of those things that you thought were going to save you? Let go of those. What would keep you from letting go of those and laying hold of Jesus this morning? God has told you the story. He's laid it out as clear as he can. He wants rescue for you. He loves you. He loves you and wants rescue. Don't let this day get away from you without laying hold of him through faith. Say, well, how do I do that? Right now, just just admit, I'm a sinner. I'm drowning in an ocean of my sin and I need to be rescued and I believe Jesus is the way for me to be rescued. Just, Just confess that. That's all. Believe. Let go and believe. And God says, I'll do the rest. And if that is a decision that you would make in this moment, if you actually would make that decision, don't leave today without letting somebody know that, that you've done that. We'd love to help you, provide you with resources to grow in this new relationship. For all of us who do know Jesus and have been rescued, oh, what a glorious, glorious day. Lord, we have a chance now to honor you as we gather at the table and remember the cost of our rescue. At the table of remembrance, the bread and the cup remind us of the body of Jesus broken, bearing our sin, his blood poured out, a covering for our sin, the price of our rescue. As your people, we would love to honor you on this day by remembering you, Lord Jesus. And thank you for rescuing us. So we give you this moment now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.